Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Wednesday, June 21st, 2023. In this week's episode, a potential prosecution fiasco in the double murder trial of rapper YNW Melly. Also, the shocking jailhouse confessions allegedly made by the Delphi murder suspect Richard Allen. But first, prosecution testimony from a sheriff's deputy who alleges that Parkland Resource Officer Scott Peterson didn't follow his training as his trial for negligence and perjury continues. Today, we are joined by Imran Ansari, a former New York assistant district attorney, a trial attorney, legal analyst, and host on the Law & Crime Network, and a friend of the show. Imran, welcome back. Josh, thanks for having me again. Uh, We always look forward to having you because I know you follow these cases very closely and all the work that you do, especially on Law & Crime Network. Uh, But for listeners who aren't familiar, haven't heard you before, can you tell us a little bit about your current practice? Sure. So uh, I'm in a boutique firm here in New York City. I'm a former assistant district attorney. I would with the Brooklyn district attorney's office. I was there for many years. Uh, I left as a felony assistant for private practice. Now I'm at a firm called Idala, Bertuna and Kamins. We are a criminal defense and civil litigation firm. Uh, and I have sort of segued into heading our civil litigation uh, practice here at the firm. Although, uh, you know, this, we have a very robust criminal defense practice and I also switch over uh, there when needed. Uh, and of course, there's the media aspect like you, Josh. Uh, I comment for uh, various media outlets, a host on law and crime, uh, and try to keep viewers and listeners out there updated as to all the legal news uh, that's out there uh, making the headlines. I like it. You have a lot of irons in the fire. and We appreciate that. So let's jump into these cases. Uh, First, out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where according to a former Florida sheriff's deputy who testified for the prosecution, Parkland School Resource Officer Scott Peterson did not act in compliance with his active shooter training when the school shooting took place in February of 2018. Peterson, a former sheriff's deputy, was assigned to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School 
on the day that Nicholas Cruz took the lives of 17 both students and faculty. Peterson faces counts of child neglect and culpable negligence for his alleged failure to intervene in the shooting. A former training officer of the accused testified that Peterson had undergone active shooter training in both video simulations and enactments with live participants several times prior to the February 14th shooting. Moreover, that Peterson had been trained to confront the active shooters in those situations rather than waiting for backup, adding that deputies are taught to head toward gunfire in an effort to limit civilian casualties. The defense has alleged that Peterson could not tell which direction gunfire was coming from, causing him to retreat to a nearby building as Cruz continued his shooting on the third floor of the school. On cross-examination, Peters' defense, Peterson's defense pardon me, highlighted that at the time of the shooting, the written policy of the sheriff's office stated that deputies may enter a building during an active shooting. Since the Parkland shooting, the policy has been updated to declare that deputies shall enter a building during an active shooting. Peterson is being prosecuted under Florida caretaker statute, which requires that in order to find Peterson guilty of child neglect, prosecutors must demonstrate that Peterson was legally a caregiver to the students of the high school. A caregiver under Florida law is defined as, and this is a quote, a parent, adult, household member, or other person responsible for a child welfare. If jurors determine that Peterson was a caregiver, they must determine whether or not Peterson made a reasonable effort to protect the children under his charge or if he failed to provide necessary care. Last year, Nicholas Cruz pled guilty to all counts but was spared the death penalty by jurors uh, after jurors could not unanimously agree upon the death penalty. Peterson's trial is expected to last several weeks. All right. Imran, a lot to jump in here, and we're going to call upon both your criminal and civil expertise because there's a little bit of crossover in some of these things. Yeah. But first, I just want your, your hot take. Do you feel that the the prosecution even bringing this case is well-founded or misguided? Yeah, so Josh, well, you know, I think it's wrapped up in emotion because it's a huge tragedy that occurred uh, in that school. Of course, Nicholas Cruz being prosecuted uh, pled spared the death penalty. And of course, that also catapulted changes in the Florida legislation as to how the death penalty uh, can be given by a jury. Uh, but here, listen, Scott Peterson uh, had a job to do. And the prosecution is saying that he failed in doing that job woefully. Uh, and that is why we are in this situation. I think that the jury in this case are really going to be having to make a decision uh, divorced out of emotion because of that horrible loss of life uh, with children there and analyzing the action of Scott Peterson uh, and also the mindset. What was going on through his mind? What was he confronted with uh, and what his training entailed and whether he shirked that training along with, of course, uh, as you mentioned, Josh, uh, whether he was designated a caregiver. I think arguably uh, he could be designated a caregiver in this situation. He was tasked with the ultimate caregiving, and that was to provide security for those children. Now, whether his acts rise to the level of criminality that's ultimately something that the jury is going to have to determine. Uh, but of course, the prosecution have brought these charges and feel that way. My hot take is that uh, the jury is going to have a tough time because it's such an emotional uh, and tragic event. Uh, and also, they're going to have to focus on the training and the operative word of may and shall 
in that training handbook, in the training that Scott Peterson was given at the time of how to confront a school shooter. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get back to that May and Shao because I think that is important too. Uh, but I agree with you. I think this is a, a an emotional prosecution. It's a reactionary prosecution. It's a frustrated, uh, a prosecution born of frustration where people just cannot stand to see these tragedies continue to happen. And so they're starting to point the fingers at several different uh, other people other than the shooter themselves right. and try to say that's where blame should lie as well. And I think it may be a little misguided. Well, I think it's a lot misguided, if I'm being quite honest, in this prosecution here. Um, but yeah, you pointed out the idea that there's, there has been, a, in fact, a change in their guidelines between this idea of may and shall. And, and talk to us a little bit more about that and how that distinction might be the actual sticking point that could change the things here in this case. Sure. I mean, it really comes down to the language, right? The operative language in that training. Uh, the word may is optional, right? It's giving the school safety officer or the individual in that position the option of analyzing the situation and not necessarily a mandate to go in towards the shooter. Uh, of course, if push comes to shove uh, in the court of law, that person will have to show a reasonable uh, basis for not confronting that threat and taking the certain actions he or she did. But the term word may is optional. It's not certain. Shall is forceful. They've changed it to shall, which really uh, there's no ambiguity there. It's stating that a school safety officer, uh, someone in charge uh, of the safety of the school, making sure uh, that these school shootings are confronted and, and really put to rest in a fast way, needs to go in and confront the possible shooter. Uh, I think that's going to be a real uh, issue that the jury is going to have to focus on. And it may or break may break the case for the prosecution and make it for the defense. If they're able to show that he acted reasonably, there was no real dereliction of duty. And this is, as you say, a possible misguided prosecution, really out of frustration, out of tragedy, but not necessarily grounded in law. Yeah, yeah. The, the way... I think of that may shall uh, distinction there is to me when you're saying, you know, in, in in this type of a situation, an officer may enter the building. That to me is saying he's been given permission to do so if he decides to do so, meaning there won't be any repercussions for not doing so or for doing so. He may enter the building if, if, if he feels like he needs to under the circumstances. Whereas shall puts an actual duty upon him. He shall right. do it. It's it's something that they are required to do in those situations. And obviously they saw the distinction and the fact that they changed the law most likely in response to this exact case uh, to make that now an actual obligation on officers. All of the talk that you're doing, I agree with everything that you're saying, but a lot of it sounds like the civil world. It sounds like n duties of care and negligence and breaches of, of duty and all of that type of stuff. It doesn't sound like the criminal world that we're used to where it, it is we're talking about an obligation that a person had to act rather than preventing them from acting in a certain way is what we usually see in the criminal world. So I agree that there may be some liability here, something that where people can perhaps sue if they felt that he didn't uh, 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 behave appropriately under the circumstances, but bringing it into the criminal world just seems like a bridge too far to me. 
You had mentioned something earlier, earlier, and I wanted to get into it about how um, Florida has changed their laws in regards to the uh, death penalty. And it was in large part in, again, response to this case where the Florida legislator, after Cruz was spared the death penalty, uh, became a state with one of the lowest thresholds for the death sentence, now requiring only eight out of 12 of the jurors to agree to the death penalty and to only exhibit one aggravating factor. What are your thoughts on this? Right. Well, it's indicative that there was frustration with the way the jury uh, rendered their verdict on sentencing uh, with the Cruz case. And here we have a a, a loosening uh, of the requirements uh, for a jury to render a death penalty, how that's going to really implement, uh, be implemented and uh, be used. We're going to have to wait and see. Right. This is a new uh, standard or law on the books. But it really makes it all the more plausible that if, if there's going to be a murder case uh, at the sentencing phase, it's not going to be that hard of a rigorous sell to the jury if the prosecution is seeking the death penalty. And defendants need to be all the more worried and defense counsel and the way they negotiate, uh, you know, pleas or negotiate sentencing uh, prior to the jury being handed that decision. There's going to be, uh, uh, of course, considerations in that. From inception uh, of the case, when you're thinking about a plea negotiation, to the time of sentencing, if there was a conviction, there's going to be all the more consideration on the defense side of how to handle uh, the case, because now there's going to be all the more real exposure for their client if they're charged with certain crimes to face the death penalty. Yeah, I think you could really see a lot of, like you said, in the plea negotiation phase, maybe a lot of people much more inclined to accept something that might spare them this now greater uh, chance of being um, sentenced to the greatest punishment we have in this country. I'm not going to even comment on whether or not I think this is a good law, the way that they've changed it, only to say, I think whenever a legislation, when legislators a reactionary to something, I think it's a bad idea. I just think it's a bad policy to be creating policy from a reactionary uh, place. And I think that's what was done here. Right. In any case, we will continue to watch that case. It's going to continue for it, it, it expected a couple of more weeks. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn to Delphi, Indiana, where a trial date has been set for murder suspect Richard Allen. Allen has been charged with the slayings of Abby Williams and Libby German on a remote hiking trail near Delphi, Indiana. In a recent court appearance, prosecutors in Allen's defense sparred over statements allegedly made by the defendant since his incarceration. Prosecutors claim that Allen confessed to the murders five or six times since his arrest. Allen's defense has argued that the statements made by Allen cannot be trusted due to his deteriorating mental state. The suspect was arrested for the murders in late 2022 with an unsealed affidavit revealing that an unspent round found near the girls' bodies at the crime scene were a forensic match for a firearm owned by Allen. 
A judge is set to rule on several motions to suppress evidence filed by Allen's defense before the beginning of the trial, which is currently slated for January 8th, 2024. Let's first, Imran, talk about this this concept of of so-called jailhouse confessions. I want to know, first of all, if you have any experience with them, how reliable do they feel? Do you feel that they are? And and most importantly, if the judge does allow these confessions that he allegedly made while being in custody in into the trial, uh, what kind of effect do you think they could have on the jury? Sure. So uh, first, it's a fact and uh, individual specific inquiry. Uh, as to whether a jailhouse confession is going to be reliable. But typically, uh, many times, they're not so reliable. Often, a jailhouse confession isn't coming from the defendant themselves, but maybe a cellmate who is now uh, turning state's witness and giving some information to the prosecution. That lends itself to a big question. Why are they doing so? Uh, and that it also gives defense counsel the ability to dig into that and find out if there's some sort of bias or motive uh, for that uh, cellmate or someone in prison to come forward with that uh, confession, alleged confession for another inmate. When it is from the inmate themselves, it really lends you some pause. Uh, here, particularly so, Josh, because we're getting reports that his mental state uh, and his physical state is not the best. So you have to question why uh, he is now confessing uh, as the prosecution is putting it in prison. Is this a confession which is grounded uh, in a sound mind or is there is there some incompetence uh, going on here mentally where he is not uh, reliably confessing? If the judge lets it in, despite the defense's anticipated vigorous opposition, I think it's going to have a lot of uh, negative consequences for all the uh, the obvious reasons, especially if they're able to get in multiple confessions from the defendant uh, before the jury. It may be an open shut case uh, if they're a bit able to get that in. I think we're going to see that really highly litigated between the defense and the prosecution. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think it that will be the entire case. I mean, right. they'll they'll connect it through some. We're going to talk about some of the forensics and some other witnesses. I'm sure they're going to have lined up. But if there's a confession and that's admissible, I I think that's the entire case there for the prosecution. I you may remember this. I remember this when I was in the DA's office that you'd get a handoff from someone. They'd be explaining to you what the evidence is. You know. We've got uh, some video surveillance. We've got some some fingerprints that were found on scene. Oh, oh and, and he he confessed when he was interviewed by police. I don't need to hear anything more. <laughs> right. Once I've heard there was a confession on tape, I'm done because the rest of the stuff is kind of window dressing. Yeah. Because when jurors hear from the mouth of the uh, accused saying, I did it, it really is the most convincing thing. And I think it's a natural consequence, but... Uh, you know, if you're ever, ever crossed paths with someone who's given a false confession, it's really hard to get jurors to understand that concept. Yeah. Um, so we'll see what happens in this case, what the judge ends up doing. Right. But I and, wanted and, to talk. Go ahead, please. Yeah. And Josh, you know, when I was a, a, an ADA in Brooklyn, we would ride cases, meaning there was oftentimes I would get a call at 3 a.m. and it would be a detective some, from some precinct in Brooklyn. Uh, and there would be a serious crime and they would have a suspect uh, under arrest uh, and we would come down and we would go ride the case with the NYPD. Uh, and often that would entail me getting the defendant on video, uh, Mirandizing that defendant after he had already been Mirandized by the NYPD 
and eliciting through slow questioning uh, a potential confession. Uh, and that would happen more often than you would ever would imagine uh, because you, uh, someone's in a position. And if you confront them with pretty solid evidence, they tend to think that if they just admit it, it's somehow going to help them down the line. We would make no promises, of course, uh, but it, human nature, when confronted with some damning evidence, you're going to start talking. Uh, but that would be, you, you know, a confession on tape. And usually I'd go back to the DA's office uh, the next day. I'd write up the case. Uh, and as soon as I wrote uh, admission or Mirandized and then I would sum up the statement, we would be in all the more powerful position to prosecute that defendant. And often it wouldn't go to trial uh, because they would be taking a plea in light of that confession. So yeah. uh, often you need corroboration of confession to make sure that it's a reliable confession. But like you say, Josh, you know, if this confession comes into uh, trial before that jury, it's going to be a very hard case to defend. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, just for listeners' understanding, there is a rule in California, at least we call it the corpus cop-out rule, where you can't just confess to something there without some evidence connecting you to the crime. Otherwise, so as long as there's some, and it doesn't have to be much, but as long as there's some other corroborating evidence, you know, a fingerprint, a eyewitness, somebody else who can tie you to that crime, and you go ahead and confess to everything else and fill in all the uh, uh, missing pieces. That's enough, but 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 there is a protection at least against somebody confessing to something they have no knowledge about in us and 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 bringing that person, um, you know, actually convicting that person for a crime that they likely did not have any connection to. So in this case, kind of tying it all in, there is some evidence that connects him to this crime um, that I wanted to discuss with you because I also find it to be interesting. Um, and putting aside his confession, this is something that will likely come in. But we are learning that one of the central pieces is uh, what's been described in the affidavit as an unspent 40 caliber round between the bodies of victim one and victim two, which was forensically determined to have been cycled through Richard Allen's Sig Sauer model P226. Okay, w what we're talking about here is that Ammunition is gen generally made of very soft materials like brass and copper and lead. And firearms, the actual gun, the weapon is made of much harder uh, metals. And that when a round is cycled through, not even fired, but just cycled through, the harder metal of the weapon can leave scratches and other um, markings on that unspent round that then can be uh, forensically matched to that weapon. And, and people think about it as being almost a fingerprint of the weapon. But I wanted to open this up to you to ask, have you ever dealt with this in, in your career? And then how reliable is it? Are we talking about the kind of reliability like DNA and fingerprints or is it something different? Yeah, Josh, this particular evidence uh, itself has been attacked uh, in uh, other trials, you know, as to the reliability uh, and the admissibility, ultimately, of whether this is going to connect a certain round to a certain firearm. I think we saw this uh, brought up in the Murdoch trial, you know, in similar arguments and, and evidence. Uh, I haven't seen it personally in a case myself uh, where it's being used to uh, as evidence uh, to connect the defendant with a certain crime. Uh, but you see it uh, now emerging and that reliability 
uh, is being attacked by defense counsel. Uh, and once you know you attack the reliability of trying to keep that out from the jury, uh, it could be effective, especially here, as we were saying, Josh, it could be one of the few pieces of evidence uh, to connect him other than his confession. So if you're able to successfully keep that out and then also keep out the confession, uh, the defense is all the more stronger and the prosecution has uh, even more of an uphill battle to deal with, particularly in this case. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it is certainly a field of forensics that's under a lot of scrutiny by the defense. Um, and I have dealt with it uh, when I was a prosecutor and the way that it was explained to me no, this is not like DNA. This is not even like fingerprints. What it really is, is it can help you determine that you cannot um, you cannot rule out a gun. It's more often used successfully to say this weapon could not have been the weapon that was used to fire this round because this weapon um, leaves very distinctly different markings. But even when you have a weapon that... Um, through testing can produce a round similar to the round that they have that they're trying to uh, use as a that there is is there evidence you can't really use the terms match but you can say that it does seem to be consistent with having been fired out of that weapon and i yeah. you, i know i'm getting really technical and in the weeds here but it really is more of a a tool of eliminating possible weapons rather than actually like we do in DNA saying this is the weapon used. Yeah. You follow me on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's uh but we've seen it come into trial. So I think precedent wise, uh you will see it being uh, admitted into evidence at least uh for the sake of of you know uh, not excluding a potential right. weapon, right? So right. Uh, we'll see unless there's a, a, a successful attack and, and debunking this in a very solid way. I think we're going to still see it coming into trial and being used by the prosecution. I completely agree. The judge will likely say it's admissible and that goes towards its weight, not admissibility. And we'll see it at trial. Finally, let's turn to uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where, where rapper YNW Melly's defense demanded a mistrial last week after what they described as a prejudicial fiasco in the artist's ongoing murder trial. Melly, born Jamel Damans, uh, faces two counts of murder for the 2018 shootings of deaths of Chris Thomas and Anthony Williams. Both victims were friends of the defendant and fellow members of the YNW Collective. The defense's motion for a mistrial occurred following the testimony of Felicia Holmes, the mother of YNW, Melly's ex-girlfriend. Melly's defense argued that prosecutors deliberately put Holmes on the stand to taint the jury and question the witness in a way that prejudiced their client, including questions which referenced inadmissible evidence. The judge ultimately denied the defense's motion for a mistrial, and Melly's trial resumed this week with the 24-year-old rapper facing the possibility of the death penalty if convicted. All right, Imran, dive right in. Do you think the judge got it right in this case? How 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 was this a, a case where you might think you would see a mistrial declared? 
Yeah, no, I think the judge ruled uh, in the right. But, you know, if there is a conviction down the line, uh, you, we definitely have a robust record by the defense here uh, that they could fall back on. And we've seen this in the YNW Melody trial with the defense really going out there uh, with various aspects uh, of the evidence and the testimony coming in, putting forth a pretty strong record. Uh, and, you know, you could tell that they are definitely shoring up uh, all the appellate issues if there needs to be an appeal, if there's a conviction. Um, I think the in terms of ruling on the mistrial, this judge got it right, but did signal uh, that there may be some issues to deal with. And also, I think signal to the defense uh, that you should be careful what you ask for. Right. So and uh, what I mean by that, Josh, is that if you as a defense attorney, uh, request a mistrial, it doesn't mean that your client gets a, it's going home and getting off and it's done, the case is done. No, uh, it's just going to press a reset button on the trial. And even though you see something unfolding at trial, evidence, testimony, that may lend itself to a plausible argument for a mistrial, step back and think. Is the trial going my way or my client's way, I should say? Um, and you don't necessarily want to hit that panic button and ask for the mistrial if you're in a good position at trial, because then you may reset everything. And what's the prosecution going to do? They're going to learn from their mistakes. They're going to come back and they're not going to make the same mistakes on the retrial. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I, I'm smiling because that was one of the things I was going to get into uh, with you as the judge really uh, pressed on the defense before he made his ruling on, you know, does your client understand the consequences of this? And I think that being, if I go ahead and grant this, the, like you said, the prosecution gets a do-over and they might be able to clean up a lot of some of the mistakes that some people, your myself and perhaps you as well, have been critical of some of the um, decisions and, and uh, some of the ways that the prosecution has handled this case. And maybe the defense feels like they're in a good spot right now and don't want to start over and give them an opportunity to clean that all up. But getting back to this idea of just kind of mistrials in general... But judges, this is a very difficult burden, and and oftentimes these things are denied. And what the judges often do is they rely on what they call a curative instruction, meaning they're just going to tell the jurors <clears throat> um, the prosecution asked an inappropriate question or the questions asked by all of the attorneys are not evidence themselves, only the answers are evidence, and we've all heard these things. But do you think these things really work in the minds of jurors? Can, the, can that bell truly be unrung in certain situations? Or Josh, you, I mean, you just used the phrase that we attorneys, we trial attorneys always use that you, you can't unring the bell. Right. Uh, and, you know, a curative instruction only goes so far. And I think that's where the judge really needs to make the decision uh, when faced with a request for a mistrial. Will a curative instruction undo the harm that's already uh, been out, maybe possibly inflicted uh, with the jury being tainted or not? Um, or is a mistrial, the sort of, you know, pressing the self-destruct button on a trial, the necessary, uh, you know, measure to take? I think, Josh, and I, we actually use these skills and these strategies as trial attorneys, we sometimes know that maybe a question is going to get objected to and sustained. We sometimes put something out there or say something which we know will raise an objection from the other side. We may even get our, our uh, a slap from the judge, uh, but uh, we're going to ring that bell uh, and we may do it subtly. 
because we know that the jury is going to ideally grasp it. And even though it may get stricken from the record, you can't unring the bell. Um, And, you know, many times that's as trial attorneys, you sort of dance that dance and you you towed the fine line uh, in using those strategies. But the judge really needs to make the decision because if a curative instruction is going to undo the harm, so to say, if it can be undone, uh, then that's the more conservative route rather than the mistrial. And I think, as you state, uh, Josh, um, it's really a hard burden to meet uh, in order for uh, to convince a judge to uh, declare a trial a mistrial. um, And it's often not done by the judge. Yeah, I'm trying to even remember now of when I've seen a judge declare a mistrial in the middle of a trial. I mean, they'll declare a mistrial when you have a hung jury, but for them to declare it in the middle of the proceedings, nothing even comes to my mind because like you said, it's really just has to be something so disastrous that the judge feels there's no way to cure this and that we have to stop and start over. And there's a lot more that goes into just starting over because it may have been difficult to get these witnesses to come in the first time around and everybody's ramped up and ready for trial and now you got to start all over so i was not shocked uh by the judge's decision but it is it is interesting uh to know that there's a there's more strategy being played here than might meet the eye when you first see the arguments in court but this case will continue on for uh, a week or so more, and we'll keep an eye on it, see how it turns out. But in the meantime, that is our show for this week. Imran, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you? So, Josh, they could go uh, to my Instagram or my social media handle, Twitter. It's uh, Imran Ansari ESQ. Uh, so, at Imran Ansari ESQ. They could go to my law firm's uh, webpage, which is www. Idala Law, A-I-D-A-L-A, Law, L-A-W.com, uh, and could reach out to me that way. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ, or check out joshuaritter.com. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or concerns you'd like us to address, Tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.